This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be here with us today. We pray that he would lead us and guide us as we study um, this important topic. We pray, dear Father, that, um, that we might see things in a light that we have not seen them till now. And I pray that uh, that, that will radically change each and every one of our lives. We thank you in advance for hearing and answering this prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know probably a lot of you weren't here yesterday. Well, let me ask first, who was here yesterday? Oh, okay, so we do have some who were here yesterday. Good, good. Just a quick review on yesterday was part one of um, uh, what the, the, the seminar is not Christ the watchword, but Christ the catalyst of the revolution. And uh, yesterday was part one of a two-part, two-part series in, that, in this, um, this seminar entitled A New Way to Read, A New Way to Read. And we talked about how Jesus Christ introduced a new way to read, a new way of looking at the scriptures. I want to um, read a couple of things to you because yesterday we talked about... Um, seeing Christ as he was revealed in the scriptures, how there was a difference. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ, the disciples only had to invite people to come and see Jesus for themselves. Come see a man who told me all things. That's what the woman said in John chapter 4. And the disciples had that very same invitation. In fact, if you look at John chapter 1, that's how Jesus uh, uh, he got many of his disciples. We have found the Messiah. Can any good thing come out of that? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. But when Jesus would ascend to heaven, they would no longer be able to give that invitation as Jesus would no longer bodily be here on this planet Earth. But I want to read a couple of things to you that, um, that I believe kind of emphasize that point. Um, but first, uh, I, was, I think I was talking to somebody yesterday if you look at every one of the public discourses in the book of Acts, they have one thing in common, well, two things. One is that they trace through the history of Israel, at least Stephen does that in Acts chapter 7. But each and every one of those discourses centers or focuses on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So in all of the messages in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 14 through 36, Acts, cha Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 26, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, Acts chapter 5, verses 29 to 32, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53, Acts chapter 13, verses 14 to 41, Acts chapter 17, verses 21 to 32, and Acts chapter 26, verses 2 to 7. The theme of every sermon in the book of Acts was Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to be able to put two and two together. If you want the type of results that the early church had, then you must preach the same message 
that the early church preached. Yes or no? And that message centered around none other than Jesus Christ. As we discovered yesterday, Jesus Christ, as he was revealed in the scriptures. Um, in Acts chapter, or excuse me, this is Acts of the Apostles, chap, uh, page 157. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. The name was given them because Christ was the main theme of their preaching, their teaching, and their conversation. Continually, they were recounting the incidents that had occurred during the days of his earthly ministry when his disciples were blessed with his personal presence. Untiringly, they dwelt upon his teachings and his miracles of healing. With quivering lips and tearful eyes, they spoke of his agony in the garden, his betrayal, trial and execution, the forbearance and humility with which he had endured the contumely and torture imposed upon him by his enemies and the godlike pity with which he had prayed for those who persecuted him. His resurrection and ascension and his work in heaven as the mediator for fallen man were topics on which they rejoiced to dwell. Well, might the heathen call them Christians since they preached Christ and addressed their prayers to God through him. Acts of the Apostles, page 594. Jesus Christ, the wisdom and power of God, was the theme of every discourse. His name, the only name given under heaven whereby men can be saved, was by them exalted. As they proclaimed the completeness of Christ, the risen Savior, their words moved hearts, and men and women were one to the gospel. Multitudes who had reviled the Savior's name and despised his power now confessed themselves disciples of the crucified. Christ's Object Lessons 127 of Christ's life and death and intercession, which prophets had foretold, the apostles were to go forth as witnesses. Christ in his humiliation, in his purity and holiness, in his matchless love was to be their theme. And in order to preach the gospel in its fullness, they must present the Savior not only as revealed in his life and teachings, but as foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament and as symbolized by the sacrificial service. So all of these things are... Uh, Evidence that the theme of the message that the apostles took was none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, there's another one that I don't believe I have here. But um, essentially, it says that if it says that if we it says that we are to preach Daniel, preach the prophecies of Daniel and preach the prophecies of Revelation but takes the mind of the people to Jesus. Preach prophecy, but let all of your preaching center around Jesus. Now, um, I remember a few years ago, after I was reading some quotations like that, I was challenged to go back and study the three angels' messages in the light of Jesus. Because I could easily tell people about the fall of Babylon. I could identify who Babylon was. But I couldn't quite get Christ out of the second angel's message. And definitely I couldn't get Christ out of the third angel's message. You know, if any man receives the mark of the beast or the number of his name, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He will be tormented with fire and brown. Where's Jesus there? And yet the Bible 
says that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if I can't see him, it's not God's fault. It's my fault. I need to go back and dig deeper. So the apostles are now preaching and teaching and they are um, they are uh, representing Jesus to the world in a way that they have never seen him. We ended our session yesterday talking about the three types of messianic prophecies, the straight line or direct prophecies in Micah chapter five, verse two, that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Bam, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. You know, Daniel chapter nine, he will be anointed. Bam, he was anointed. So those are those straight line prophecies. There's not much to them except for, uh, you know, there's a prophecy made and there's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Then there's the typological prophecies, um, which some of them have partial fulfillment in an immediate successor of a prophet or a king. For instance, Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, actually, the Lord was speaking through Moses and said that, um, that he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses from the midst of the children of Israel and him, all of the people should obey. Um, immediately succeeding Moses was the prophet who? Okay, one person uh, knows who the prophet is. Who? who? Joshua, right? So that prophecy had a partial immediate fulfillment in Joshua, but the ultimate prophet that God would raise up from the midst of the children of Israel, who they all should listen to and obey, was referring to none other than Jesus Christ. Also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there was a prophecy concerning David's son, who would be seated on the throne of Israel even forever. In the immediate sense, that prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Solomon, but in the ultimate sense, that prophecy would be fulfilled in its absolute sense, rather, in none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And the third type of um, messianic prophecy was typology in Israel's history. And I asked you a question, those who were here yesterday, I asked the question and I said, um, where exactly does the Bible predict that Jesus would die and he would be resurrected on the third day. Where exactly does the Bible predict that Jesus would die and he would be resurrected on the third day? And the fact of the matter is that there is no direct or straight line prophecy in the Bible that says the Messiah will be cut off and he will be raised again on the third day. There is not one of those prophecies in the entire Bible. I was talking with uh, my good Canadian friend here. A lot of good Canadians. But uh, I was talking with my friend John Ross here, and I told him I went to, um, uh, there's a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it's uh, put out by a guy named Josh McDowell, and he compiles a lot of um, evidences for, for Jesus Christ. And he talks about 456 uh, Old Testament prophecies that pointed to things that would take place in the life of Jesus Christ. And he gives all of these um, scientific or uh, statistical uh, reasons why it would be impossible for anyone to, uh, to have even eight of these things to take place in their life. Well, I went to a skeptic website and I wanted to see what the skeptics had to say about it. And the skeptics were looking at the scriptures in an entirely different way than Josh McDowell was. And they turned to a scripture like Micah and they said, this has nothing to do with the Messiah. And they turned to several other texts and they interpreted them 
in a completely different way than a Christian would interpret them. So I want to deal with that as a lead into into the rest of what we'll talk about today. First, Jesus believed that the scriptures taught that he would rise on the third day. Mark chapter eight, verse 31. Turn there with me. Mark chapter eight, verse 31. Are you there? Then Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and experts in the law and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Is that what your Bible says? So Jesus is teaching them this. All right. Let's take a look at another passage. Um, Mark chapter nine, verse thirty one. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Mark chapter 10, now verse 34. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely. And kill him, yet after three days he will rise again. So Jesus is clear, Jesus believed that he would be killed and he would rise after three days. Yes or no? It's clear. Jesus also says in Luke, now turn to Luke chapter 18. He didn't simply just believe this out of a vacuum. Jesus claimed that the Bible predicted that all of these things would happen. Luke chapter 18 now. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 31. Are you there? Then Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is what? Everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Wait a minute. So Jesus says, everything that's getting ready to happen to me is what? It's prophesied. It's been written. All right. Now, I'm going to just go out on a limb and assume that we all agree that he was not talking about these things were written in the local newspaper. He was saying that they were written and they have been prophesied in the scriptures. The New Testament had not been written. So these are the Old Testament scriptures for he will be. Handed over, verse 32, to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, mistreated, spat on. They will flog him severely and kill him. Yet on the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus not only believed that he would rise on the third day, but he believed that the scriptures prophesied or predicted that he would rise on the third day. And we suggested yesterday that there was something new about the way that Jesus interpreted the scriptures and um, We're going to figure out what that is. Now, how did the apostles deal with this this concept of the resurrection of Jesus? Let's take a look at a couple of their um, of their texts. Acts chapter 13, verse 33. 
The Bible says in Acts 13, 33, are you there? That this promise God has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. That's referring to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have fathered you, or today I have begotten you. All right? So they use this text to refer to the resurrection of Jesus. Are you with me? Three people are with me. Is anybody else with me? All right. Praise the Lord. Let's take a look at Acts now, chapter 2, verse 31. How did the apostles deal with the question of the resurrection of Jesus? How did they link it to Scripture? Verse 31, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades or his soul was not left in hell, nor did his body experience decay, nor did the Lord suffer his Holy One to see corruption. All right. So according to this text, Peter says that David prophesied about the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see that? Yes or no? All right. One more. Acts chapter four, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. Now, these are texts that, um, excuse me, I didn't give you the references for those last two. Um, in Acts 2.31, the reference was Psalm 16.10, and in Acts 4.11, the reference is Psalm 118.22. This is how the apostles dealt with the resurrection of Jesus. But something is missing in all of those Old Testament scriptures that they quoted. There is no reference to rising on the third day. Did anyone see any reference to rising on the third day? Okay, I didn't see it either. I just wanted to make sure. None of these point to a third day resurrection, or none of them says that after three days he would rise. There are, however, two places in the Old Testament scriptures that I believe Jesus referenced when referring to his resurrection after three days or rising on the third day. And you know both of them, I'm sure. The first one is found in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and the other one is found in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Let's take a look at Jonah. Yes, that's exactly what it was. I need to switch my version. I'm sorry. The Bible says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish 
three days and three nights. Now, how do we know that, um, that Jesus used this in order to reference his resurrection? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Matthew chapter 12 now. And we'll read verses 39 and 40. The two places in the Old Testament that refer to the third day or this is the scriptural basis that Jesus had for a third day resurrection. Verse 39, but he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is taking the experience of Jonah and he's relating it to himself. And he's saying that this thing that happened to Jonah was a type of what would happen to me. Are you following me so far? All right. Uh, take a look at a couple of more references. Luke 16, 4. Excuse me, Mark. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, 4. Is that why some people get kind of confused about the three days and the three nights? It is. In the grave, literally three nights, when yes. the resurrection would have been on Monday morning. Exactly, exactly. But what, they don't, what they're missing is that he only used the three days and three nights as a type. And in a type, everything doesn't have to exactly match up. Jonah was in the whale, by the way, and Jesus was in the ground. So everything doesn't have to exactly match up in a type um, the way that some people suppose it should. Verse 4 of Matthew 16, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. So Jesus, and there's other texts as well where Jesus refers to um, this situation or the, um, the story of Jonah as, um, as having or as being the, um, the Old Testament backdrop for his, for his resurrection. Now I want to talk about Hosea. I want to read a couple of things to you. By the way. Can somebody read Hosea chapter 6, verse 2? Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. All right. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up to live in his sight. Uh, One scholar remarks on Hosea chapter six, verse two. And he says that verbally, this verse is the nearest parallel the Old Testament offers to Jesus's uh, predictions of his resurrection. Now, the interesting thing about Hosea chapter six, verse two, is it's a prophecy concerning Israel. And God is essentially saying that after the Assyrian exile, that there is going to be a remnant And that remnant is going to be repentant in heart. And as a result, they are going to be revived. 
they're going to be revived. So after the Assyrian exile, you guys know what that is, right? That's when the northern ten tribes were taken away by the Assyrians, all right? So he's saying that after all of this rebellion and whatnot is settled, that God's people are going to have a repentant heart, and as a result, they will be revived, as it were. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is that... um, The interesting thing about this passage is that Jewish scholars, Jewish scholars used this passage in Hosea as well as the one in Jonah chapter one, verse 17, not to refer to a revival, but they used it to refer to a resurrection from the dead of Israel. Let me read this to you. Okay. After the exile, the rabbis apply Hosea's promise in a new eschatological or last day um, or end time way to the resurrection of Israelites from the dead. A fact that causes one scholar to say that the interpretation of Hosea or the Christian interpretation of Hosea is not a Christian invention. In other words, this wasn't even something that Jesus invented. Now, remember, this, the title of this second part is A New Way to Read. So apparently Jesus um, talking about Jonah and Jesus talking about Hosea and referring it to a resurrection was not new to any of his hearers because the rabbis had been interpreting those texts to talk about the resurrection of Israel at the end of time. They've been doing that for years. Well, what's, what's new about this thing then? Jesus applied the symbolic expression of Hosea's prophecy concerning Israel's restoration after two days and on the third day, literally to himself, to his substitutionary death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus applied a prophecy which originally pertained to the national restoration of a faithful remnant of Israel to himself as the Messiah of Israel and to his own speedy resurrection from the dead. While the rabbis made an eschatological application of Hosea's prophecy referring to Israel's resurrection from the dead, Jesus made a new and unique messianic application. So the difference between how the rabbis interpreted Hosea and Jonah and the way that Jesus interpreted Hosea and Jonah, the rabbis interpreted Hosea and Jonah to speak about who? The nation of Israel. Jesus interprets Hosea and Jonah to speak about who? He interprets it to speak about himself. Now, what are the implications of that type of interpretation? What is Jesus essentially saying? Jesus is saying, I am Israel. Jesus is saying, I am Israel. All of these things that were predicted or prophesied that would happen to Israel I am taking them and applying them to me because I am the true Israel. This is the key to Jesus's messianic interpretation of the scriptures. He takes all of the history of Israel and all of the 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 things that took place to the nation of Israel and that were prophesied or predicted to to happen to the nation of Israel. He takes them and applies them to himself. This is the way that Jesus comes to uh, what he teaches about his being resurrected on the third day, because it was predicted that Israel would be revived after three days. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm the new Israel. 
Now, let me take you on a little bit of an, uh, an Old Testament journey and show you how uh, Jesus being the true Israel fits in. In fact, when, 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 well, what is Israel? When you first see that name Israel in the Bible, what is it? It's a person, is it not? Yeah, it's a person who has an experience. In fact, that's why I named my son Israel, because I love that story. All right. My oldest son, 10 years old, named him Israel because this man named Jacob is wrestling with an angel who we know to be Jesus. He's wrestling with Jesus and he is asked the question because he won't let him go after an elongated period of time. He refuses to let him go. What is your name? My name is Jacob. No longer will your name be called Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince, thou hast prevailed with both God and man. Is anybody awake today? Y'all not, y'all not, are you hearing me? Israel, as a person, would prevail with God and with man. Israel would link both heaven and earth. By the way, how was Jacob prevailing? If you read in uh, Genesis chapter 32, that's where you find the, the incident about his wrestling experience. If you read there in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob splits up his family and he crosses over the brook and Jacob begins to pray. And two times Jacob, he utters these words, for thou has said to me. Thou has said to me. What does that mean? What is Jacob doing right there? He says, you told me. And when God tells you something, what does that mean? God has done what? God has promised because he cannot lie. Yes or no? So Jacob is claiming the promises of God. This means that he is having a righteousness by faith experience right there in his night of wrestling. And he prevails. He prevails. This was not Jacob's experience alone, but Jacob's experience was typical. It would typify, excuse me, the experience that Jesus Christ would have. Not only Jacob's experience, but Isaac's experience. We, I was mentioning or talking with someone about this yesterday. Isaac, he goes up to the top of Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, by the way, Jesus is not only the new Israel. Jesus is the new Isaac or the true Isaac. He's the true Israel. He's the true Isaac as well. Isaac goes up to the top of the mountain. Hey, pops, we got the fire. We got the wood. But where's the where's the lamb? God will provide himself a lamb. Now, Isaac did not resist his father, did he? He willingly allowed himself to be bound just as as Jesus did. Jesus, uh, the Roman soldiers did not have to struggle with him or wrestle with him to put him on the cross. He said, no man takes my life, but I. That's it. By the way, in the New Testament, Jesus is not only the true Israel, the true Isaac. Jesus is also uh, in the New Testament. He's referred to as the second Adam or the true Adam. All right. So what Jesus does in his messianic way of interpreting the scriptures is he takes the history of ancient Israel. And I'm sure you all know uh, you all know um, the history of Israel. Right. They go down into Egypt. Yes or no. Did Jesus have to go to Egypt? Yeah, he did. They come up out of Egypt into the promised land. Yes. And Jesus, did he come up out of Egypt and come into the promised land? Yes, he did. Israel settles there and begins their ministry. The sanctuary is erected, so forth and so on. And likewise with Jesus. By the way, Israel crossed through the Red Sea. Right. Jesus also was baptized. Israel crossed through the Jordan. Jesus was baptized in 
the Jordan, so forth and so on. You can make comparisons between the experience of Israel and that of Jesus because Jesus is the true Israel. This is the key, the key that Jesus gave his apostles to interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. It was not to see things. I mentioned yesterday a story about a pastor who went into a home and the rabbi sat down and opened Isaiah 53. And remember, I told you that the rabbi interpreted Isaiah 53 as referring to Israel. This new interpretation replaced Israel as a nation with the true Israel, who was the Messiah. And so now this is the key. This is the way that the Old Testament scriptures have now opened up as they are reading everything in the Old Testament. They are seeing the Messiah taking the place of Israel. In fact, the Messiah not only takes the place of Israel, but the prophets, the faithful prophets and the faithful kings in the scriptures are also typical of Jesus Christ. They typify the Messiah. And so David, who is a man after God's own heart, his life typifies. You wonder why the Bible says, you know, because you you've read David's story and you know that this guy was kind of a rascal and he did a lot of horrible things. But when God refers to him, he always says he was faithful to me. He did this. You're like, man, wait, who, who are you talking about? He wasn't faithful. He refers to Abraham the same way. Abraham kept my charge. Really? Mother was a liar, an adulterer. But these things or Abraham or these men were typical of the true one who was to come, the true father of the faithful, the true man after God's own heart. And so the apostles were given a new key to interpret all of the scriptures. You know, this is the reason why I don't know if you have heard. I'm sure you have heard of dispensationalism. How many have heard of that? Okay, you're like, man, what is that? All right. But people, how many of you have heard of uh, left behind? Right. You've heard of the secret rapture. Right. And all of these biblical interpretive models, do you know that they focus on ancient or literal Israel? Which really means that not only is their interpretation of the Bible wrong, but it is actually anti-Christian. It's anti-Christian because they reject Jesus's method of Bible interpretation. And Jesus's method of Bible interpretation, he doesn't focus on national Israel. He focuses on himself. That's why, as we read yesterday in Luke chapter 24, he expounded unto them in the scriptures all things concerning himself. When Jesus gave Bible studies, the Bible studies always pointed to himself. When Jesus talked to people, his his encounters with people always led to him. If you remember in John chapter four, that's Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well. Jesus wasn't just giving her Bible doctrines. Jesus was leading her to him. Right. He says, hey, you know, um, he, he begins the conversation. Give me a drink of water. Why are you talking to me? We're not even supposed to be talking. You know that you're supposed to hate me and I'm supposed to hate you. This is not even going to work out. Jesus is like, hey, you know, if you knew who it was that was talking to you and the gift and the privilege that you had, you would be asking me to give you water. What? You don't even have a you don't even have a bucket or anything to draw water with. How are you going to draw water? What are you going to get from that? He's like, no, no, no. I'm talking about a different water. I'm going to give you living water. He says, oh, living water. So I never have to come here. Never. Have, man, give me this water. Go get your husband. 
Uh, 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 yeah, right. I know. You've had five, and the one who you're with is not yours right now. I perceive that you are the prophet, that thou art a prophet. She tries to get theological on him. Oh, you, you are a prophet. You're a good man. And so why don't you solve these theological issues? Uh, should we worship in Jerusalem or Gerizim? Jesus says, look, man, uh, you know, God is spirit and they that worship him are going to worship him in spirit and truth, so forth and so on. And Jesus eventually brings that entire conversation down and says, I that speak to you am he. It's me. And the woman is, whoa. Wow. So. In Jerusalem or Gerizim. That's right. So Jesus brings it all down to him. And he not only did that in his personal encounters with people, but he all, his personal encounters were shaped by his his interpretive method of approaching the scriptures. So when we look at the scriptures, we should look at the scriptures. And uh, in a this is not a point by point thing. This is like putting on glasses, spectacles. You put on glasses, and when you look at the scriptures, you see them through the lens of Jesus Christ, through the lens of the Messiah. And as a result of this, the disciples, the apostles, were able to preach Jesus Christ in a way that was new. No one had ever heard of anything like this. No one. And by the way, this was good news if you were a Jewish individual. Instead of you having to suffer, there was someone who would suffer for you. Instead of the stripes of the world being laid on you, you're like, man, why do I have to get everybody else's stripes? Their message was that Jesus has taken not only the world's stripes, but yours as well. This was tremendous news to the nation of the Jews. So everything, when you read in the book of Acts, you see the disciples preaching and teaching and using the scriptures in a way that is all founded and based off of Jesus's messianic um, model of scriptural interpretation. It literally turned the world upside down. No one had ever heard or read the scriptures like this. And they preached it with power, as we suggested yesterday. They preached it as though Jesus himself was literally there with them. And indeed, they believed that he was, as we uh, mentioned on yesterday, the Bible says these things, uh, Luke, in writing these things that Jesus began both to do and teach. So at his ascension, his work here on earth was not completed. The Bible also said in the book of Mark, the Lord working with them. That's the same Lord who had ascended. So Jesus continued his um, he continued his work. He continued his ministry um, here on planet Earth. Are there any questions? Yes, we're, we are to do the same. Um, this is why, you know, I was, I was sitting back and I was thinking yesterday. I said, man, we are great at preaching. I mean, it, like I mentioned earlier, how can you preach Revelation 18 and talk about Jesus? You mean you think Revelation 18 is about the judgment of the great whore, 17 and 18, the, the judgment of Babylon? So you're like, man, OK, that's that's information. But there's no Jesus there. 
I'm talking about in terms of the way that I've heard it preached. I've even preached it myself and, and taught it and learned it and heard it. How can I preach prophecy? How can I preach scripture? How can I preach Revelation 13 and lift up Jesus? And we have to, we have to take this model that Jesus used and gave to his apostles, and we have to allow it to permeate our beings. We have to put on those spectacles, as it were. Even when we look at predictive prophecy, prophecies that are yet to come true, if we're not doing that, we're just scaring people. As I said to you earlier, in Acts, in all of the sermons in the book of Acts, Jesus was always the theme. He was always the theme of every sermon that was preached. And so they preached prophecy, but Christ was always uplifted and exalted. When you study prophecy, when you share, when you give Bible studies, do you simply give information or do you give Christ? Do I preach and simply give people information? And uh, someone commented to me the other day that uh, we were talking about some baptisms they had at their church. And they say, yes, you know. We baptize folks, but then they were on to the next thing. You know, when you show people Christ, there is no next thing. There's nothing better than Jesus. Once you lift him up and they see him, in fact, that's what Jesus promised. He says, hey, I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all unto me. And so we have a serious, we have a serious problem because we want the results from Acts chapter 2. And from the book of Acts, we want the results, but we don't want to use the method. We say, man, we've got all of this, this great, wonderful, prophetic things, puzzle pieces, everything fits together and we can share and we can show it to everyone. But we don't want to lift up Christ. And as a result, our preaching lacks power. Our witness lacks power. And um, we, we blame it on the world. Oh, the world is just wicked. They don't want to hear the truth. And really, have we given them something to cause them to, uh, to, to see that the hunger and thirst of their souls can be satisfied in the man Christ Jesus? Comment, question. All those examples that you give showed us that Jesus is a personal, a personal Savior. He's personal. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. You know, a suggestion was made, then I'm going to come right here. A suggestion was made, I think, this morning, Brother West, and he was talking about studying the Bible. A lot of times we can feel like, man, I know this. And if you've grown up around a Seventh-day Adventist church, you, can, you hear somebody, oh, today our text is Daniel chapter 2. Oh, yeah, I know it. Either you're going to talk about the ten times wiser, or he's going to talk about the image, or he's going to talk about dreams and whatever. You know what direction a person is going to. Matthew chapter 20, okay, here we come, last day events. You, you feel like you know these things, and a lot of times we turn off, and when it comes to our own personal study and the time that we spend in the Word, we will try to avoid those and look for something that's new that we are not as familiar with when the truth is that we have not, we really don't know Daniel chapter 2, 
We really don't know Matthew chapter 24. We really don't know those things in the way that I believe that Christ would have us to know them. That is to look through that messianic lens and see Jesus Christ in a way, not just old predictions about, you know, what's going to happen in the future and, and all this other stuff, but actually to see Jesus there. And this affects the way we share. This affects the way we share. This can give me excitement when I go to give someone a Bible study on Daniel chapter 2 or, or any of these things. I will be excited because now every study, guess what we're studying? Jesus. You know, we're going to study Jesus, but we're going to see him from Daniel chapter 2 today. We're going to study Jesus, but we're going to see him from Daniel chapter 7 today. We're going to study Jesus, but we're going to see him from Revelation 13 today. They go, Ooh, how you going to do that? <laughs> we're going to study Jesus, but we're going to see him. Listen, one of my, one of my uh, what sent me on a, a tangent as well was um, somebody wrote Ellen White a letter, and they were suggesting that, they were suggesting that, um, that righteousness by faith was getting in the way of preaching the three angels' messages. They're like, man, shouldn't we, uh, shouldn't we be preaching the three angels' messages? Is, is that righteousness by faith stuff? Is that the three angels' messages? And her response was, it is in verity. <laughs> so it calls me, and this is one of those challenging things as a person who, you know, uh, is spiritually conceited. Lord, have mercy on me. Spiritually conceited and think you, you, think you know it. <clears throat> How on earth do I find righteousness by faith in the three angels' messages? How on earth do I give a study now, remember, the three angels' messages, you know, um, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the what? Everlasting gospel to preach unto every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. So the three angels' messages is the everlasting gospel. Amen. But can you really find the gospel? In the, have you really personally for yourself found the gospel in the three angels' messages? Have you really personally opened the three angels' messages? Begin at Revelation 4, oh, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, this is just Jesus. All up and down and through. Oh, praise God, this is just Jesus. No, we'll tell people about, yes, Babylon has fallen once for the papacy, once for apostate Protestant. We'll run through like that. But we ourselves have not seen Jesus. So you know what that amounts to? That amounts to me giving a false message. Because if I can't show Christ there, then I'm not really giving the message as Christ would have me to give it. So what I need to do, this now becomes the theme of my time in Scripture. Now I'm saying, Lord, open my eyes. Remember we've seen in Luke chapter 24, says he opened their eyes, the eyes of their understanding. And then they began to see, Lord, breathe on me. Give me the Holy Spirit so that I can see as you would have me to see. Brother John Ross. Yeah, so it sounds like you would be talking a lot about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, does that mean that, because we talked about it yesterday and a little bit afterwards, the New Testament then is basically the apostles looking at the Old Testament and then writing about this is what we see. Yes. They're, 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 the New Testament is basically an interpretation of it. So I guess my question is, is when, when we come to the Bible with that New Testament lens, I guess I'm just trying to wonder, like, how do we see, how do we, what, is, what does it look like to view the New Testament through the lens that that Okay. So the question was, um, that the, the, the apostles have basically put on the messianic lens and they've looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament basically interprets what the Old Testament says, but through the messianic lens. So when we come to the New Testament, how do we then look at that? I think it's a, uh, it's a fascinating study and a combination of two. 
And that's the reason why, um, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why we can, uh, we can preach that we are not just New Testament Christians. Because in order for me, in order for you and I to understand what the apostles are writing about in the New Testament, I must first understand what they saw in the Old Testament. So let me look at something, for instance, in its original context. Let me see what it meant. Then let me see how they interpret it in the New Testament. And then let me see how God applies this to my life today. And then let me see how God meant something, for instance, in the Old Testament, not only to apply in the time of the apostles, but also in the last days. For instance, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He took a prophecy, the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, and Peter essentially said that this is the partial fulfillment. They remember they asked, they said, are these guys, these brothers are drunk, man. They appear talking in languages they don't even know. And Peter said, no, 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 no. This is these guys are not drunk. It's too early in the day. They might be drunk later, but no, 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 no. It's too early in the day for them to be drunk. But this is what the uh, this is what the prophet has spoken of. And he begins to quote from Joel. And he says, today, this is fulfilled in your eyes. Now, we see that in its partial fulfillment in Acts chapter two. And then we begin to ask ourselves the question that was partially fulfilled because it did say in the book of Joel, this is where it, it, it becomes beneficial to go to the Old Testament. It does say um, it shall come to pass in the last days. The apostles didn't live in the last days. But you and I believe we're living in the last days. So if it met its partial fulfillment in Acts chapter two, then Lord, what will its ultimate fulfillment look like in the last days? And how does what happened in Acts chapter two relate to what's going to take place in the last days? See what I'm saying? So we can tie all of those things together, but it sends us back to what the apostles read. And then it comes down to, OK, this is the fulfillment that they've seen in their time. Then we can ask, does it have an, an eschatological or a last day application to us? And many of it, a lot of it does. You know what we read about in Revelation, obviously, Second Thessalonians and, and so forth and so on. So it drives us back to a thorough study, not just of the New Testament, but of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And by the way, we're going to talk about in our next presentation we're going to talk about um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two. And uh, our next presentation is going to be entitled the key to the promise, the key to the promise. There was a promise that was given in the book of Genesis. There was a promise that was given in the book of Genesis. And the fulfillment of that promise is actually what we see in the book of Acts. The fulfillment of that promise is actually what we see in the book of Acts. And in our next session, what we'll do is we'll see, uh, we'll look at a few scriptures and we will show how, um, how this was Jesus's goal and this was his, his main thing. But are there any more questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. OK. The question was, um, she says she knows a young person who struggles, especially with seeing God in the Old Testament because of some of the genocide. And when God says, basically, I want you to kill uh, everything that moves, kill the animals, kill the, the young child, the young children that give suck, the women, 
old people kill everyone. So how would you help that person to to see Christ in that? Well, I think um, there's several ways of doing it. But uh, one is one would be to help that individual to understand love. And I would take them. I could take them right to the cross, for instance. And I would begin by explaining what's taking place at the cross. By the way, what is taking what was taking place at the cross? Who? Okay, the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus, was suffering for who? He was suffering for the guilty. An innocent person was suffering for the guilty. And I would begin to explore what that meant because Christ's suffering on the cross is not just um, Christ suffering because of my sins, but it's Christ suffering because of the sins of the entire world. So the suffering, excuse me, the guilt of all of humanity is now placed on the one being in the universe who is innocent above everyone else. All right. I would I would begin to ask uh, and challenge uh, like Jesus did. You know, when Jesus was asked questions, he would fire back with another question. (laughs) So I would ask, um, like I had a conversation with a young man. I forget where I was. I think I was in Canada. And he he said he didn't like uh, the idea of God killing people and whatnot. So I asked him a question. I said, let's say that um, uh, someone breaks into your home. They assault your mother. They sexually assault her, physically assault her, and they kill your mother. And you tell me that you don't believe that God should kill anyone, that that's not fair. What would you do to this individual who just assaulted and murdered your mother? He said, well, I would I would uh, have them sent to prison. I would forgive them. I would rehabilitate. I would have them rehabilitated. I said, man, that's a great plan. I said, what if they didn't want to be rehabilitated? He's like, what if they said, you know what? You can keep me in here as long as you want. I will kill while I'm in here and I will kill again when I get out. I said, then what do you do? He said, well, I would try to rehabilitate. Uh -uh, You can't do that, man. You have to honor their choice now. They just told you they don't want to be rehabilitated. They just told you they will kill in prison and out of prison. What do you do now? And then he was like, "Uh, I think I see your point. So when you look at some of the things that God does, instead of us asking the questions to God, I think sometimes we need to put the questions to ourselves. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, it tells you what the Canaanites were doing. The ones who God said, you know, I want you to slay utterly both old and young. It says that they were involved in not only incest, but they were also involved with men laying with animals, homosexuality. What do you do with animals who have been raised like that? What do you do with children who have been raised like that? How do you rehabilitate them? What's your plan? How are you going to fix that? And then we begin to understand some of the complexity of the issues that God is dealing with when God judges. And instead of we don't always we're not always able to come and say, "Okay, yes, I understand what God does. That's not always the conclusion we'll come to. But at least we will have we will we will sometimes be humbled and say, you know what? That's a serious problem. And and, and instead of me knocking what God does, man, I have a tremendous amount of reverence for anyone who can handle that problem. Because you know what? As a human being, 
with my finite wisdom, I simply don't know how to handle that situation. And so um, I would ask questions like that. First, start with the cross and then ask questions like, how would you deal with this situation? And describe the situation in all of its raw ugliness. What do you do? What do you do with that? What do you do, for instance, modern day situation with a young man who comes in and kills his own mother and rifles down little children? What if he didn't kill himself? What do you do with him if he refuses to be rehabilitated? And he says, I mean, look, man, the best thing you can do for me is kill me. If that's what he tells you, what do you do? Do you continue to try to force him against his will to be rehabilitated? What do you do? Anyway, I hope that that's a, a suggestion, um, small suggestion in some way to beginning to deal with that. But most of all, we need the Holy Spirit to lead in God and change that heart. Because as we said yesterday, Jesus said, um, if you are not born again, you cannot see, conceive or understand the kingdom of God. You can't understand how God operates. You will not be able to conceptualize it. Then I have another hand over here. Two. Yes. Mm, mm. Which is another that's trying to understand. It is. It is. Christ, at the same time, she says, was he was down on the cross, was forgiving while the very those people were crucifying him, killing him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So there's there's a lot there. I'm going to go ahead and um, have a closing prayer. Dismiss. Let those who want to go somewhere else go. And those who want to stay, stay and let the new ones come and so forth and so on. So let's bow our heads together. Loving Father and our God, we thank you for the challenge that you've given us today, not to rest on our laurels in terms of how much we know and how logical our message is, but to go and restudy what we thought we knew and to see it with new eyes, to read with a new understanding. I pray that you would help us to see things through the lens of the Messiah, Jesus. And as a result, I pray that you would give us new and fresh ways to present the truths that we have. The things that that often we ourselves grow tired of hearing. Help us to find fresh ways to lift up Jesus, even through those portions of the scripture. And I trust, dear Lord, that as we follow the method that the early church used and we try to emulate giving the message that the early church gave that you will give us the results that the early church received we thank you father for hearing and answering this prayer for we ask it in jesus name amen this message was recorded by fountain view productions for gyc gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh-day adventist church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.